0: If you would, you can open your Bibles to Psalm sixty-eight. If you're new to the Bibles, to the Bible, you can find page numbers in the listed in the bulletin as to where you can find Psalm sixty-eight. It's in the middle of the Bible. A large number is the Psalm, the, the sixty-eight, and then the small small numbers are the verses, and those will help you just to kind of follow along. Uh, as we we go through this passage together. Uh, Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open your word to us and that you would permit us to hear it. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to the truth that you want us to see and hear. Uh, God, we pray that we would respond appropriately. We pray that you would open... Our, our, our minds and our desires to want what you want for us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Whenever you have experienced something really good or a, a big moment in your life has occurred, the first thing you want to do is tell somebody about it. And the reason you want to tell somebody about it is because the joy is magnified when other people see it too. And what you really want, whether you've thought about it or not, is you want them to have the joy you have. Now, we've all had times where that's failed on us. We're excited about something that our spouse, if you're married, is not excited at all about. But the whole point of telling them is, you should care about this. Well, a lot of times, that's what Scripture is screaming at us. You, sh- you should care about this. And Psalm 68 is no exception. God wants us to celebrate his rule by joining into the procession. He wants us to participate in that championship parade when the streets are lined up and all the confettis coming down and we are shouting and rejoicing because it happened. That's what Psalm 68 is about. God loves us and he wants our joy to be in him. God loves you and he wants your joy to be in him. In this verse in this, or in this psalm, you'll see in these verses, look with me with, uh, with your eyes and, and see the celebration that's depicted. In verses 24 to 27, look at what it says. People have seen your procession, God. The procession of my God, my king in the sanctuary. Singers lead the way with musicians following. Among them are young women playing tambourines. Bless God in the assemblies. Bless the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin, the youngest, leading them, and the rulers of Judah in their assembly, the rulers of Zebulun, the rulers of Naphtali. Look at verse 4, where it says, Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and celebrate before him. And then look at how it concludes in verse 32 and following. It says, Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord. To him who rides in the ancient highest heavens. Look, he thunders with his powerful voice. This psalm is inviting us to join in that parade. The whole thing is about God. The psalm tells us why all this celebration is going on, and it's all about him. But the impact is for us. We're going to see that God wants us to focus on who he is and what he does. That's what he wants us to see. That's what he wants us to look at, what he wants us to focus on, to keep our eyes, our minds, and our hearts fixed on. And you know what's glaringly absent, though, as we do that? It's the part that you and I play in it all. And you'll actually notice that we don't do much of anything in this psalm except sing and rejoice and benefit. And that's what God wants us to notice. So, if you take notes, what God wants you to do is He wants you to celebrate His rule by joining in the procession. And the way we want to try and get our hearts there is by seeing two pictures. The first picture is a picture of God and his ascension. God and his ascension. This is loosely verses 1 through 18. The second picture that we want to see is we want to see a picture of God and his benefits. God and his benefits. This is loosely verses 19 to 35. So while it's all about him, we get a picture of God and we get a picture of us in God's shadow. And both pictures are invitations. The first is an invitation to see God and be in awe of Him, to come near the Holy One of Israel and to view His glory. Just to kind of gaze in on the majesty and the beauty and the preciousness of the treasure of who God is. But the second one is an invitation to enter into that and join in the praise to get in line in the procession and just bask in the shower of his benefits. That's what this psalm is laying out for us. So let's look at this first picture, a picture of God and his ascension, beginning in verses 1 through 18. Now I want you to know, before we get going deep into this, we're going to get a big picture. So this psalm has too many concepts, too many ideas and 35 verses to, to really like dig into what's everything mean here. What what this psalm needs to do for us is we need to get the picture, those two scenes, and let it it impress on us what God is is saying. So to do that, you're going to have to just kind of stay with me because it's going to take a minute to, to set the scene, okay? So these verses, verses 1 through 18, draw from several key events in the history of Israel. So in the Old Testament, in the narrative portions of Scripture, the author wants us to recall those in our minds, but the way he does it recalls various times like that. For example, you'll see clouds or riding in the sky is mentioned in verse 4, and then again in verse 33. Depending on your translation, there's a few ways it's worded, but that's the idea. God rides in the clouds or he rides in the sky. And then in verse 8, he's commanding rain to pour from the skies. So those three verses, for example, are, are lifting our eyes up and saying, where is God? Where does he come from? Where is he at? And the, and, and the depiction in the words are calling us up and saying he rides in the clouds. He controls the atmosphere. He even controls rain in its falling or not falling. And these things recall the cloud of the wilderness journey, when God led Israel by a cloud by day. Or the clouds at Sinai when the dark clouds settled on top of the sky of, of the of the mountain, or the clouds of battle at times, or the storm of Elijah when he's there again at Mount Sinai in his moment of weakness and he's crying before the Lord and needing strength. It's meant to evoke our memories of God's mighty deeds. So you're supposed to take in these things, but not just as a one-time event but we're supposed to take them in as the kind of things God does. So the psalm also has a movement to it. It generally moves from slavery in Egypt to the time when Israel is established in Canaan and beyond. So allusions are made to Israel enslaved in Egypt but rescued by God. The clouds of verse 4 remind us of the cloud that led Israel from Egypt. If you look at verse 6, Look at what it says there. God provides homes for those who are deserted. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious live in a scorched land. This verse recalls Israel's slavery. They were prisoners, captives in a foreign land with no home. The trembling earth in verse 8 mentions Sinai, the mountain that God met Israel at. But beyond all of this, the conquest is depicted here. Multiple lines of this psalm, and you would only know this if you were studying uh, Judges uh, chapter 5 really closely this week and comparing it with Psalm 68. But the psalmist is pulling from the song of Deborah and the great victory that happened when uh, God fought on behalf of Israel through Deborah to defeat Sisera. And there's several things, there's several lines and verses that are mentioned that that the author here is grabbing from there and pulling in to our our passage here. It pulls from the song of uh, of Deborah in those ways. In in Judges chapter 5, verse 4, the Lord marches out in front of them as he does here in verse 7. Look at verse 7. It says, God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the desert... Now you say, well, that sounds like what God does a lot of times. And you're exactly right. That's exactly what you're supposed to take from this. But the phrase itself is pulled right out of Judges chapter 5, verse 4, which is what Deborah is celebrating. Also, the heavy rainstorm of Judges chapter 5, verse 4 is mentioned here in verse 8. So verse 8 continues, The earth trembled. The skies poured rain before God, the God of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Well, if you're paying attention in your Hebrew Bible and you're 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 watching everything that the author's saying here and you're going back to Judges chapter five and you're looking at these two things, you're you're made to recall the way God fought for Israel and overcame this army of Sisera with his chariots and the way he fought for them by even bringing a heavy rainstorm in the middle of the battle so that they would win. The exodus and the battle with Sisera, in both of those accounts, they both had chariots. Both Egypt and Sisera had chariots that they opposed God's people with, and they didn't have any chariots. So you remember the famous line, some trust in horses and chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Those chariots, look at where they show up, Here in this passage, in verse 17. Here, they're God's chariots. God's chariots are tens of thousands, thousands and thousands. The Lord is among them in the sanctuary as he was at Sinai. The chariots that have been used by God's enemies to oppose God's people and hurt them have become spoils of war and he's deployed them in his arsenal now. It's a picture. Kings were defeated as Israel went into the promised land. So in in verse 12, we see them fleeing in the first half of the verse. It says there, the kings of the armies flee. They flee. She who stays home divides the spoil. Those who stayed home are those who stayed home in Manasseh. As the people of Israel moved out of the wilderness into the promised land and the first land was taken... They, they had to go across the Jordan River into Jericho, and some were to remain behind. But the soldiers were to go on across. Well, those who remained behind participated in all the spoils of victory. Because as Israel moved in and they conquered the land as God had promised to them, all of his people would benefit. So, in verse 10, they settle the land. Your people settled in it. God, you provided for the poor. By your goodness. So you get the scene that the artist is painting. It's a mosaic of Yahweh's activity in the life of Israel, where he took them from slavery in Egypt, where they seemed deserted, fatherless, homeless, and imprisoned, and he brought them to settle into a land that flowed with milk and honey, where they possessed homes that they didn't build, they had vineyards that they didn't plant. And they were settled with peace over time, where God reigned over them, his law governed them, and he gave them a king to rule over them. All of this is just sort of painting this mosaic for us to see. God wants to remind us today of the kinds of things that he does. The fact that this psalm doesn't just celebrate one victory, but more broadly, the habitual ways of God... Is meant to show us God Himself. Do you see Him? Do you see who this God is? When we talk about God, this is who we're talking about, or it's who we should be talking about. These mighty acts of God are a revelation of His strength and His power and His presence. Do you see that? Now look at verses 15 through 18. These are really the heart of the psalm, and it's really where all of this is headed if we're just following along here. And they probably tell us the occasion that this psalm was written for. Look at verse 15. Mount Bashan is God's towering mountain. Mount Bashan is a mountain of many peaks. Why gaze with envy, you mountain peaks, at the mountain God desired for his abode? The Lord will dwell there forever. God's chariots are tens of thousands, thousands and thousands. The Lord is among them in the sanctuary as he was at Sinai. You ascended to the heights, taking away captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, so that the Lord might dwell there. These verses seem strange to us, right? So you read verse 15 and you say, Mount Bashan, I don't know what that is. Is God's towering mountain. And then in verse 16, it's gazing with envy, at, and then there's other mountain peaks, and, the, and they're looking at the mountain that God desired for his abode. That's kind of strange. It's strange to us, right? So, what is, what is he getting at? Well, to, to say this is, is actually not that strange when you think about it in terms of how one city might feel when another city gets the Olympics. And they're like, really? It's going to that country? Or if a Nobel Prize winner or somebody with some sort of clout and importance wanted to make a big announcement or was moving into a city nearby and you found out she chose Cranston as her location. (laughs) And you're like, you're like, Cranston? And Providence gazes with envy and says, are you kidding me? Do you know about our restaurants? Do, do you know about the walkability of our city? Have you seen our walking bridge? And then we're like, as in Cranston? As in me, myself, and Irene Cranston? As in dumb and dumber Cranston? That's what these verses are describing. Mount Bashan is a mighty mountain. It's, it's actually a mountain range that begins at, or is, or is cap, captured at the, at the peak of Mount Hermon, the, the, the jewel of northern Israel. And Mount Hermon will have snow in in the summer at the top with its beauty. And out of that snow melt that comes, it begins to feed the River Jordan that goes all the way through and gives water to the land of Israel. That's a good mountain. But it's not just Mount Hermon. If you follow the whole mountain range down, there's all these other great mountains. And they're all in this region of Bashan. This verse is pointing out that there are beautiful, mighty mountains that God could have chose but he didn't. He chose Mount Zion. He chose where Jerusalem is. He, told, he chose a particular mountain that he wanted. And so it's, it's, it's capturing in a poetic way the, the envy of the, of the mountains that they might have for such an unimposing mountain like Mount Zion. Well, all of this took place Mount Zion became God's chosen place when David took Jerusalem from the Jebusites in 2nd Samuel chapter 5. So the movement of the psalm that takes us out of Egypt and moves us through the conquest and into the, the the time of settlement brings us to the point when Jerusalem itself was captured. And when that happened, it was the climax and the symbolic end of the conquest. And David, as a result of that, brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to rest there from then on. This is where God chose to bring his resting place. Now, all of that makes a lot more sense, too, when you realize verse 1 is quoting another verse. Look at what it says in verse 1. It says, God arises, his enemies scatter, and those who hate him flee from his presence. This is a quote from Numbers chapter 10, verse 5. And this is what Numbers chapter 10, verse 5 says. Whenever the Ark of the Covenant set out, Moses would say, Arise, Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and those who hate you flee from your presence. And when it came to rest, he would say, Return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. So the psalm is grabbing the idea that happened in Israel's history. Every time Israel would get up to move to a new location, the ark would lead out in front because the ark of the covenant is the visible symbol of God's presence. And in the visible symbol of God's presence, it, it represents the throne of God himself. So God marches in front of them. So as the whole assembly packs up, gets their stuff together. The ark sets out and Moses would announce, Arise, O Lord. Let all your enemies scatter in the presence of Yahweh as he moves his people. So you see the occasion of this psalm is celebrating the, the God arising and coming from symbolically from Sinai and moving into Jerusalem and setting up his abode on Mount Zion. And so the result is is that God is enthroned on Mount Zion. This is a little bit like a trophy coming back after a championship. And we celebrate this in our culture. I know I use a lot of sports analogies sometimes, but that's where we see battle today when we're not actually looking at real war. Battle is continued through sports. And when, 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 a, cha- when a team wins a championship, a city celebrates and they honor it, by, and people come out, and they flock to the streets, and everybody's cheering, and everybody wants to see the trophy and just sort of get a, a, a touch of the team because it's everybody's victory, or at least that's the way it feels. Well, this psalm celebrates this whole movement of God in the life of Israel that's set in stone on the Temple Mount. And it's inviting us to enter into the praise of God who does this. That's why verse 4 says, Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is Yahweh. Celebrate before him. So here's what I want to do. I want to just use these verses, and I want us to just see who he is. So look with me. I'm going to give you a verse, and then I'm going to point you to what it says about God. And we're going to keep moving. So beginning in verse 2, track with me in your mind as to the description we get about God. Verse 2, God blows away his enemies like smoke from a wick. They melt like wax. The the mightiest armies of the world are like God, sorry, that was too hard, blowing blowing out a candle and the smoke evaporating. The greatest armies we would be afraid of if we were honest and we were looking at with our own eyes. He blows them away. Verse 3, he makes the righteous glad. He rides, verse 4, on the clouds, which means that he's above the affairs and the influences of earth. He's not touched by all the circumstances that we're touched by. We're affected by everything on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis. He's untouched by those things. Verse 5, but he doesn't just sit in the sky which he could do. Instead, look at what it says. He's a father to the fatherless and a champion of widows. The one who rides on the clouds takes notice of those who are most vulnerable and he leans in to help them. That's, that's who he is. Verse six says he provides homes for the homeless And leads prisoners out to prosperity. And the way that verse 6 is written indicates that the author is trying to say this is how God does in the world. It's an ongoing thing that God does. It's not just a one-time thing that he did in the past. But this is the kind of thing he's regularly doing. Verse 7. He leads his people in battle instead of hanging back. Remember the picture of Saul? Saul, the the king of Israel who wouldn't fight Goliath. Saul, who wouldn't lead his army out and got young David to become the commander that would lead his armies out, Saul hangs back. Not so with God. God goes out in the front, and he fights for his people. Verses 8 and 9, he showers rain. In verse 8, it's rain that conquers enemies. But in verse 9, it's rain that revives his people. The same thing that protects his people in war is the thing that revives his people when they need their crops to grow and refreshing. Verse 10, he's a good provider to the poor. Who is God? He's a provider to the poor. Verse 11 through 18, as we've read, he's enthroned forever. He's the king. Look at verse 19. It says he's a burden bearer day after day. Doesn't that bring you comfort? He bears our burdens day by day. Verse 20, he's a savior from death. Death is our greatest enemy. There is nothing worse that we face in life than death itself. All the things that we fear are related to our fear of death. God's the one who delivers death. He gives power and strength to his people in verse 35. So he imparts the strength and power that his people need as his people realize their helplessness and the fact that we are full of burdens. He he carries them, but he also infuses us with strength and power as we go along. That's the picture that this psalm has of God. What does that do for the thing that you're facing in your life right now? I don't know what that is. I don't know how you would quantify that. But what I know is that this psalm, what God wants for you from this psalm is he wants you, instead of looking at the things that you're you're facing, the things that you're worried about, the things that you're trying to overcome, sure, there might be things you need to do there. But what he wants you to do is he wants you to look at him for who he is with these descriptions. Let that speak to where you are. I wonder what difference that would make to you. This is an invitation to see God as he is. It's an invitation to pull back the veil of whatever's going on in your life to see something more real than your biggest distraction or difficulty. You might not be struggling with something. You might be having the time of your life right now. And that can be a huge distraction to you. What God wants to do is he wants to pull that back and say, hey, look at me. God offers himself to us in his glory. This is an invitation to remember what God does for those that He loves. And if you're in Jesus today, He loves you. Think about that. If you are in Jesus, He loves you. This God, who's described in Psalm 68, who did these mighty deeds in the past, that God loves you. What is God's intention here? What is He leading things to? Well, he's leading to the resting place of his kingdom. And that's what the second picture is about. He's inviting you and me there with him. Let's think about a picture of God and his benefits to us. So far, we've basically been asking how do you see God? How do you see God? But this second part makes us ask how do you see yourself? how do you view you and this is where the impact of God of who God is and what he does really hits us the descriptions of us in this psalm are not all that flattering but it's exactly what we need to see in verses 5 and 6 we read these we're called fatherless we're called a widow we're called homeless we're called prisoners all of these are pictures of vulnerability now, we could read these, and we'd be tempted to just read these generically. But if you pay attention to the context here, it's, it's his people who are these things. It's his people. Remember, he says to Pharaoh, when, when he wants them to come out of Egypt, he says, Release my son to me. You have my firstborn son, and if you don't release my son, I will take your firstborn son. Out of Egypt, I call my son, he says. Israel is the son of God but they're, it's as if they're fatherless because they're enslaved in Egypt. They're like widows in that they have no champion. They have no one to defend them. They, they, they are vulnerable to the effects of society and those that are powerful in society. They had no home. They were prisoners, enslaved in Egypt with no place of their own. They were looking for a land that God might give them. They were all of these things, and God saw them as they were. Not for any potential they have. He didn't look down and say, you know, Israel, they look like they've got some good things going on down there. He looked at them and saw them in their need. And that's where he went to meet them. That's how he sees us. Not because he's trying to, like, bring our self-esteem down, but because that's the way we actually are. In, our, in my prayer, I was praying for Switzerland and I was, I was trying to pray for the, way, the, the, the negative effects of affluence and prosperity. Affluence and prosperity is deceptive. It has this cloak of, of, uh, of illusion that wraps around us where we think we're doing all right. We think we don't really need much of anything. But underneath all of that, we got Nothing. It's all just like this hollow shell around us. And until we see our real need, then, then we stay in that state. But because God loves us, he comes along and he, and he helps us see it. And he tells us what the, our real state really is. In verse 19, we're people with burdens. That's not flattering, right? <laughs> you wouldn't say that to your best friend. You know, you're, you're really an ongoing burden. In verse 35, the flip side of saying that God imparts strength and power, well, it means that we're weak and powerless. This isn't the most flattering description, but it's honest. It surely describes our real physical state in the world. People are just flesh, fragile, momentary, and limited creatures. But more importantly, it's a picture of our spiritual state. We don't have a whole lot to offer God. But listen, that's okay. Okay. Now, I know that's not what we're expecting. Our our human intuition says, God wants me to be somebody, so he'll love me. But that's not at all what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. As soon as we see that we don't have a lot to give God, I don't have a lot to bring to the table, spiritually speaking, and even physically, I'm just a creature who's here for a moment, and I'm on my way to the the grave. I don't have a lot to offer But as soon as I see that, now I can see God for all of his power and might and glory, and his love becomes multicolored. It's like high definition now because he loves me. (laughs) He loves someone like me who doesn't have anything to give him. Yes. Listen, he doesn't need you to be something, he doesn't need you to be somebody. In fact, in God's kingdom, you can't be somebody until you recognize that you are the one who needs God. Pride of self is what keeps people from God. Pride is what keeps people from coming to him to begin with. And pride is what hinders you and me after we've come to him from thriving. It's, it, that pride just like keeps sticking its head back up all along the way. But think about this. If God is who we see in this psalm. Why would he need us to be somebody? He doesn't need us. He has thousands upon thousands of chariots. He defeats armies. He rides in the clouds. He creates everything. He thunders with his voice. He's the one that gives strength. He doesn't need anything. 1 Corinthians 1. Do you remember what it says there, beginning in verse 26? Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were, were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things. The things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why did he do this? So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. So, have you noticed yet how this psalm doesn't have much of anything for you to do? Not much here by way of commands. Not much here by way of, hey, get it right. Not much here by even way of repentance. It's implied There's there's some implications here. You know why that is? It's because God loves us and he just wants us to have his joy. This whole psalm is a celebration of God's kindness to his people. It's all about how the one who rides in the clouds stoops down low to bless the lowly. Let me put it this way. Everything in this world says to you and me, get it done. Everything in this world says, get what you can. Uh, It it tells us don't don't let anyone beat you or take from you. It tells you protect yourself. It tells you prove yourself. It tells you to be somebody. But everything in this psalm is saying focus on Jesus. Cast your needs on him. Rest in his love. Let him be the champion. He'll give you everything you need as a gift. See, if God is king... You and I don't need to be. We don't need to be king. The first half of this psalm moved from Egypt to Mount Zion. The rest bask in the ongoing effects of God's kingdom in the lives of his people. Verse 19, as we said, captures how he bears our burdens. And verses 20 to 23 describe describe God bearing our burdens as God continuing to go to war and defeat all the enemies that we have that keep us from him. But while God does that, look again at what his people do. Verse 25, singers lead the way. Musicians following, among them young women playing tambourines. Bless God in the assemblies. Bless the Lord from the fountain of Israel. There's Benjamin the youngest leading them, the rulers of Judah in their assemblies, the rulers of Zebulun, the rulers of Naphtali. His people are celebrating. Verses 29 to 31 go on calling on God to rebuke all the enemies and where God will receive the tribute from other nations. But then it comes back to our role in verse 32. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides in the ancient highest heavens. Look, he thunders with his powerful voice. Ascribe power to God. His majesty is over Israel. His power is among the clouds. God, you are awe-inspiring in your sanctuaries. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. What does he want us to do? He wants us to join the parade. He wants you to just see who he is and just join in. Just start worshiping him. Praise him. Celebrate his goodness. Remember his deeds. Let those inform your own current life and the needs that you have in your life. They're real and they're burdens. So give them to him. He bears our burdens. He wants you to bring burdens and and give them to him. He wants you to bring your weakness and say, God, I'm weak. He wants you to bring your powerlessness and say, God, I have no power. And there find all the power and the strength and the joy of him. That's, That's what we have to do. That's what we're called to do in this psalm. What makes all this possible? All of that is possible because of the way God is enthroned in his sanctuary in verse 18. God is enthroned. The enemies are vanquished. And tribute is pouring in from all the nations. You get that picture? There he sits. And we didn't read it, but in verse 31, you see ambassadors will come from Egypt Cush will stretch out its hands to God. Notice how Egypt by the end, the ones who enslaved God, become the ones bringing their treasures to him at the end. God is, is sitting on his throne and the nations are pouring their wealth into him to say, you're the real king. You're the real king. So at first, this elevated language of God's triumph in a foreign land long ago, and a long time ago with people that we don't actually know, seems abstract and distant. But it comes home to us when we see that this is not just what God did for people back then, but it's what God does for his people always. And believe it or not, this psalm is actually talking about Jesus, the one who ascended, and he led captivity captive, and he gives the Holy Spirit to his church. This psalm is what Paul quoted in Ephesians 4 that Ed read for us earlier. Ephesians 4.8 tells us the Messiah gave gifts to people. And it's a very different verb than you see in verse 18. Do you notice that? Look at verse 18 closely. You ascended to the heights, taking away captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, so that the Lord might dwell there. Ephesians 4, 8, Paul changes the word received and says gave. So what does that mean? (laughs) Well, follow what Paul's doing. If you pay attention to Psalm 68 and the things we've said, if you haven't fallen asleep yet, you realize that what God receives, he gives to his people. When God is enthroned in Jerusalem, that's for us. Think about it. God didn't need to do that. He's already the king. The whole world is his. And he doesn't have to go through the minutiae of battling a world power, you know, overcoming a desert, making walls fall down around Jericho and go through the minutia of millennia, or, uh, centuries to bring it all about and then bring, bring about a temple where his, where his ark would sit there. God doesn't need to do that to be enthroned. He's already enthroned. He did that for Israel so that they would learn who he is. So they'd see what kind of a God he is. So they'd learn what he does. And then it was recorded for us so that we would know when Jesus shows up, what it is that Jesus is doing. Jesus is the king. Jesus came to his earth and he he walked on the earth and he went through all the minutia of saving us. All the way to the point of the cross. And in his resurrection, he ascends in a visible form before the disciples to ascend to the throne so that we would know... He's on the throne, so that he's the king. And the spoils of victory become the tools of God to bless his people. That's why in this psalm, the people are just celebrating. They're rejoicing. They're in the parade, because all that God gets, he gives. So once again, we're left just showering in his blessings. The benefits of God being king are endless, and the greatest of them all is that sinners would have God himself. And that's what Jesus gives us. Jesus doesn't just give us stuff. All that's nothing. All that's going away. Jesus gives us God. God went through all of that to enthrone himself in the middle of his people. So that when Jesus shows up, what Jesus does, he gives God himself to set up residence in the hearts of his people. The spirit indwells his people so that what happened in Israel happens in us, individually as Christians and in the church as a body. So when Jesus descended in the incarnation, he did it to march towards enthronement, defeating death itself. And in defeating death, he defeated our last enemy so that now all the benefits flow to his church through the spirit not in a temple on Mount Zion, but in the church throughout the world. He distributes his spirit and he gives gifts to his church so that we would bless each other with the gifts of the spirit. Two supernatural interventions to save and bless his people, pointing to the final one when Jesus will return one more time and the third intervention of God into time and space in a miraculous, powerful, supernatural way when he will recreate the whole thing. And all the sin is over, and all the waiting is done, and all the burdens are lifted for once and for all. So, church, we're to join the procession. Join the procession. Celebrate the Lord. Receive Him as the Father to the fatherless, and the Champion to the widow, Provider to the poor, Defender of the weak, Lover of the church. When you can see this God, you can stop looking at yourself. If you're here this morning and you realize like you, you, you don't really know that God and all this talk about Jesus being king, well, that's not something that you connect to. It's something you need to connect to because there's a third party in this psalm and that's his enemies. And you'll notice that the enemies are completely destroyed. And that is a warning for everyone who refuses this invitation. When we see God and we see his benefits to his people, if you refuse all of that, You are his enemy, and God will not fail to judge his enemies, but there is an escape, and the escape is free. Jesus died so that you could be forgiven, and you could come to him through repentance and faith. Today is the day to do that. Church, when you realize God does what we need, you can realize it instead of earning it. When you receive him, you can just celebrate him. You can just rejoice in it. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of your goodness to us, your kindness, your greatness delivered to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name.